is Steve Smith at WCG Patient Radio. WCG is a company that focuses on the ethical, safe, and efficient conduct of clinical trials. These podcasts highlight transformational opportunities of value to patients through awareness, access, and participation in clinical research. We are speaking today with Dorelia Rivera, a patient advocate mom whose daughter has a rare disease, and Dorelia is also a professional patient advocate with a wide range of experiences working for underserved populations, people who are often low income, who are often minorities, and sometimes uninsured. She has worked for the State of Illinois Department of Health and Human Services as a senior health policy advisor, working alongside more vulnerable populations, sometimes people who are experiencing homelessness and need emergency health care. She has worked on the payer side, directing Medicaid and Medicare services for a five-state region for Blue Cross Blue Shield. Now, she works in the biopharmaceutical space for Horizon Therapeutics that develops treatments for rare disease patients, another underserved population in healthcare. She has played a pivotal role as a parent in an NIH-sponsored clinical trial and has served on the NIH Advisory Council on Diversity. Doralia Rivera is a bilingual Mexican-American with substantial experience reaching Hispanic communities to attempt to give them access to health systems to better their lives. Hello, Doralia. Hello there, Steve. How did you become a patient advocate? I became a patient advocate almost by serendipity. I was actually teaching Spanish and history at a Jesuit high school in the inner city of Chicago, Crystal Ray Jesuit High School. And I wanted to make just some money on the side. As a teacher in a Catholic school, I said, well, I can do this on the side and, you know, on my days off. And I started actually working with the system called early intervention. Early intervention is a system that supports young babies from birth to three, and the system is nationwide. I started working closely with them and uh, quickly realized that when I began to work for them, interpreting and translating for their physical therapy, occupational therapy, um, you know, speech language pathologist, I became really, really interested in uh, that field, the field of chronic conditions, chronic illnesses, disability, uh, and specifically in the Hispanic population, I saw some some interesting uh, gaps when the kids were growing into systems of school and others. So I started really almost by accident. So you um, had that early experience working with young parents and young children and the medical professionals that helped them, and then you yourself got into a mm-hmm. clinical trial or got your daughter into a clinical trial when she was just a little girl. So you became one of those parents who needed rather serious medical care. Tell us about the National Institutes of Health clinical trial, the NIH clinical trial that you got Absolutely. into. What was that? Yeah, so I would have to tell you for a second about my um, the start of my journey with my daughter who has an ultra-rare disease called NOMID, neonatal onset multi-system inflammatory disease. Up to this day, there's only less uh, than 100 known cases throughout the world. And how I came to 
know first about the NIH was actually in some of the work that I was doing in early intervention, and I saw a lot of systems that touch families. I actually got her diagnosed at then Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago at about 15 months of age, and the, the physician at the hospital was the one who told me about the NIH. So we started looking into it, actually looking on some groups online. Other parents were actually the ones who connected me to the NIH, and that's how our journey started with the clinical trial. Within a couple of weeks of my daughter arriving to the NIH after being diagnosed the day we got to the NIH, we enrolled in a um, lifelong clinical trial for NOMID and other similar auto-inflammatory diseases. We call them CAPS diseases. So that's how we started, and um, we've been in it since. And at the beginning, we were going every week. Every, I'm sorry, every six weeks for one week at a time. And we did that for the first uh, couple years of her life. And now we go periodically to this day. So that's how, um, that's how I got involved in clinical trials as a parent, because it did become full, full circle. I was in early intervention, and I already knew about the system, but it became full circle once I had a daughter and within a few months noticed that there was something wrong. However, the diagnosis didn't come for about one year, but that's how I got first started with clinical trials at the NIH. And I recall that um, NOMID, um, the way it impacted your daughter and other people can be um, very devastating. I mean, here's a 15-month-old who's getting symptoms that are um, very harmful, painful, and potentially permanently damaging, who um, isn't old enough to even understand what to say about all that. So you're looking at this, and the doctor is telling you there's no cure. Is that right? That is exactly what happened. So the doctor at Lurie said, it may be NOMID, and if it is, I have no idea how, it, how to treat it, but I have read that she won't live to see 10 years old. And he went down the list of all the, um, all the complications that come with an autoinflammatory disease that goes untreated. He also went through some of the options, you know, chemotherapy was actually one of them. Inserting a G-tube was another. We were within probably two or three weeks of that if we wouldn't have, uh, quote unquote, found the NIH. It was, uh, she was uh, progressing rapidly and it would be a very different outcome today if we, weren't, if we weren't enrolled in that clinical trial at the NIH, and if what would have happened throughout our experience at the NIH, as far as her drug being repurposed for the benefit of kids with NOMID, she would not be here to now. Now, Kayla is now 16, sophomore in high school, consistently a straight-A student, and um, a blessing in all of our lives. Yes, um, and she... Um... She has a wonderful um, high school age existence, but as you were saying, as a child, with, if the disease had progressed, um, it could have been um, fatal, there could have been blindness, and there would have been a lot of pain and suffering along the way. And yes. this drug that was used successfully in the clinical trial, which has helped, which has saved her, is a drug that you took some very heroic steps, especially as a parent who had not been involved in all of this before in such a, a, this particular way. 
um, you got that drug together with cooperation of the NIH and a drug company repurposed. It was already approved for rheumatoid, rheumatoid arthritis, I heard, and but it had yes. not been tested for COVID. Is that right? Right. Um, it was exactly what happened. So the repurposing of drugs is something that is a uh, very near and dear to my heart because I've seen how it can work to the benefit of families and people, especially with rare diseases, which is my interest now in the work that I do. She was progressing quickly, and at that point, she was the youngest who was ever diagnosed with NOMID. And so really quickly, I started with other parents gathering and saying, what what can we do? So um, my voice, along with some other very strong mom advocates, um, started being involved in the systems part of it, the policy, the uh, getting involved with the FDA, make sure we had the right context, sitting at the right table, that's the FDA, and testifying to, our, to them and writing letters to them, to our congressmen, whoever would listen to us to say, this drug needs to be passed. She was taking it at the NIH. It was not approved when we first started, but the day she started taking it, I saw the benefits this exact same day. To this day, there, it is what keeps her alive. Mm-hmm. And there are so many um, rare diseases like this, and, and some diseases which are not rare that have no treatment, no cure. 7,000 rare diseases are classified, and uh, something like 10% or fewer have an FDA-approved treatment. So th- this kind of advocacy that you have done is the kind of advocacy that eventually transforms the process to get something changed. And you, you've worked, you've gone on to work for many others. For example, you've worked in public health advocacy roles, including for the state mm-hmm. of Illinois and the insurance mm-hmm. industry, as well as in clinical research. Tell us about those right. advocacy roles. So since the diagnosis of Kayla, and I was a teacher, as I first mentioned, I really made a solid decision that I would change course in my career and start working in systems for healthcare that affect people, especially more vulnerable populations, rare diseases being one of them, minorities obviously being another. So I, along the way, started my work in advocacy with early intervention, but quickly after started working in specific legislative advocacy as a family support coordinator, as an advocacy coordinator for an organization called the Family Support Network. So I started working really um, diligently in that. Um, when I worked for the state of Illinois, I was actually the senior health policy advisor for the Department of Human, Human Services. It's the largest state agency in Illinois. And I was a secretary's a right-hand person with anything that touched um, families. So it was a very important position uh, in my career and the one that really uh, catapulted me to a lot of what I do now, including working with Blue Cross Blue Shield. Working in insurance was important for me and my career path because access to these drugs that, for example, Kayla's that has been repurposed is an issue that is even to this day not talked about enough. So I wanted to get into the weeds of working at an insurance company that touches our systems because it's one thing to have a drug, one thing for it to be repurposed, one thing for it to work, and at the end, you're not able to access it due to cost, due to due to no insurance, due to um, not writing a right, you know, prior off, you know, it being on an exception or exclusionary list. 
at an insurance company or a PBM somewhere. So that's that's what that's what my my interest was in insurance. And even now, uh, after Blue Cross Blue Shield, I decided I really want to get into the rare disease space. And Horizon Therapeutics has been that space for me, and a really great one. It's been a great journey um, so far the last few years with uh, with Horizon, where I get to touch every day the lives of families, and it's uh, in a very impactful way. I feel like I've brought the best of my experience throughout my career into one place so far, and that's been here at Horizon. There are so many parts of this um, meta- development of medicine and giving access to it that are complex difficult, and difficult to understand. And so when you use your voice the way you've done, um, it has a great impact on the actions you've taken to have all these different entities come to an understanding of not only what's the problem, but what, what can they do? The FDA and the, the NIH for that trial, the drug company that had the drug, um, you, um, the, what's going on at your company now, and uh, the insurance companies, of course, without some sort of proof that this is economically um, sound, they won't pay for it. So um, the patient advocate's voice in harmony, collaboration with the other voices out there, the stakeholders, makes a big difference. And so now um, I want to ask you about another um, very massive public health problem that requires attention in not only around the world, but very much so in this country. The general public has heard about how COVID-19 has hit low-income minority communities especially hard. And this brings up the long-known public health issue of health disparities in low-income underserved minority communities. In our podcast series, uh, the one that this is a part of, includes interviews with um, African-American patient advocates with various forms of cancer or compromised immune systems resulting from their diseases, and the physicians who treat them, who also run clinical research for them, who speak not only of the problems in accessing this kind of healthcare, but the solutions that work when you actually try to solve that problem of access. Um, talk to us about this in regards to the communities that you've touched, and um, especially the Hispanic community that you not only have worked a lot with, but you are part of. I think that's an interesting question, and so I appreciate it, especially during this time of a pandemic, along with uh, the apparent health disparities um, due to race issues that we're having in our country. So I think it's a very timely question. In general, I would say I, I can speak for the Hispanic community because that's who I've worked most closely with. I have worked alongside colleagues because we work in partnership with colleagues of all backgrounds and um, and races. So I can I can say with confidence that I think uh, I wouldn't be speaking for them, but echoing what they've already what they've taught me throughout the years and working alongside with them. Health disparities are real. Uh, health disparities are determined by many factors, including the social determinants of health which is a lot of the work that I have focused on, which is if you don't have, you know, um, the housing, a stable job, a food on your table, um, X number of things, you know, the health part of it almost comes to the bottom of, of, of the priority in your life. So that's something that I've worked really closely with and I care deeply, deeply about. Um, Hispanics are the largest minority in the U.S. I mean, 17% of the population and expected to keep rising up to 28% by, you know, 
just a couple of a couple decades down the road. So a health, assessing health status and health needs is important to inform health policy that shapes our entire healthcare system, and even more so, the implementation of our uh, that our organization and others with it have helped pass for healthcare disparities in both the access, in insurance, in clinical trials. Our goal is to improve access to all of these services. Parallel. Because we can't improve one mm -hmm. without the other. And in terms of um, access, um, there we've had uh, other advocates and also the medical professionals working in those communities who talk about the simple act of getting to a medical center or a hospital. And with a clinical trial, there are multiple trips to the hospital required. And they speak of um, just fears for safety, the safety of um, not having walkable streets. Um, the safety of the risk of infection of COVID is everybody's fear if they go into a hospital that has that. Um, and also um, the health disparities that uh, attack people who are, don't have access to good nutrition, or they simply need to go to jobs that they can't take time off from or protect themselves from the public if they're a bus driver, for an example given by one of our advocates. Or they live in situations where they the younger people live with their grandparents and their parents, and they can't separate from the vulnerable older people. To what extent is that also of, are those things factors within the Hispanic communities in the United States? I think each of them has a place and is absolutely unequivocally a factor in accessing, even if for now, clinical trials. Because if you, if you don't feel safe, and safety is one thing to feel safe walking down the street to get to a bus, to get to a hospital that's conducting your clinical trial, if you don't feel safe when you are, you know, heading to, you know, a, a clinical trial at the NIH. But it could be safety in that way, but it could be safety in, you know, if I leave my job to go to this clinical trial, I don't know if I'm going to have the same job when I come back. A lot of people in our communities have nine to nine jobs or, you know, two in the afternoon to 11 o'clock jobs. And the institutions that want to accept people, that say they want to accept people of diverse backgrounds into clinical trials um, specifically, are not flexible in recognizing that these are obstacles. And if we want to, we want to improve the diversity, whether it's in clinical trials and access in healthcare systems, and, and really leveling the playing field, we have to meet the families where they are at, not the other way around. Our system is built, you know, you need us. That's how our system is built. Now, I want to see it the other way around. No, we need you. We need you because if we reach out to you and we, quote unquote, you know, you consent for us to, to use your story as, as part of our clinical trial, it'll only help us, the institutions, the researchers, the the drug developers, you know, the 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 systems that will support the the health the health disparity issue as a whole. Yes, and you're speaking of the um, concepts some others have brought up who work these solutions, as you do. Um, that if people are invited in, um, they will come, and that it's 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 a myth to assume that um, people don't want to participate. But um, there are, so there are concerted efforts by some hospitals that run clinical trials and other experts to reach out 
to community leaders and to medical centers in, in the communities, and especially trusted advisors, people who are trusted by the community, and make sure they, they understand the value of this kind of participation and are willing to um, say it. Is that is that it something you would recommend that. too? Yeah, so I have mentioned that one once before, that it really starts with that. The community health centers, FQHCs, is one that comes to mind often for me. It's uh, That's where our community goes for health care, especially lower income, lesser access to larger institutions. That's where they go. So if we start with the community. That will help. But the community isn't always as informed as to even what is a clinical trial. Starting with that, why should I have my patients participate? Uh, there's limited health literacy in these communities that needs to be addressed. There's uh, limited cultural sensitivity that needs to be addressed. There's definitely a shortage of um, minority and or Hispanic healthcare providers. So you know, research has shown you're going to trust someone more when they look like you and they speak your language and they tell you, I think you should go into this, be it a clinical trial, you're more apt to do it by somebody that you trust that is in the same, almost same playing field as you. If, if a Hispanic doctor tells my Hispanic dad, I think you should do this, my dad will be more apt to do it. Yes, and so there are many of the communities in the United States that are um, larger, poorer communities. You'll find these community health centers. You'll find um, groups that reach out to patient group populations using appropriate language and culture and um, be, being those trusted advisors. And sometimes roundtables, I've um, seen them in Chicago, where um, the um, Asian-American community reaching it to the poor Asian-American population sits at the table with the same kind of health centers that reaches into the Hispanic or the African-American communities. And they, they work yeah. together to decide how to make Chicago a healthier city. And, that, and for that's me, really how I it's really, done. Right. So what I was just going to say is that for me, there really is no time like the present. Uh, where this is becoming painfully, painfully, painfully evident. And we can build on that as a community. This is hopefully one thing we can come together on is healthcare should be a right, not a privilege. That's right. And there is, and so there, there really are these mechanisms. Um, this podcast series, including your comments here, have shown there are ways to overcome these uh, huge problems. Um, drug developers that want to recruit for clinical trials to provide medicines to these populations um, need only to listen to what others do that at work and start doing those things. And it includes um, other items like providing transportation, expanding the hours so people can do their job and do the clinical trial. These are not um, techniques that are impossible to achieve. They just need to be, people need to be aware, which you've done today by speaking with us, that these things are possible. So thank you for speaking Absolutely. with us today. I'm sorry that we're out of time, Duralia Rivera, but this has been wonderful. I really appreciate the opportunity to you, Steve, and to WCG and your team for putting this together. It's, I think it's a, an important topic. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Sure, sure. Thank you. We have been speaking today with Derelia Rivera, a patient advocate mom whose daughter has a rare disease and who is a professional patient advocate, having worked to support underserved people for the Illinois Department of Health and Human Services 
Blue Cross Blue Shield, and a rare disease drug company. Um, special thanks to our executive producer, Lauren Osmore, our technical director, David Fogel, and the production team, Isabel Andresen and Roxana Gilford-Blake. Goodbye, everybody.